This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Absolutely delighted to be joined on CFB by a true legend who we all know from playing football, commentating in football, analysing football as well. A voice that's instantly recognisable and a fellow Scot as well, which makes it even better. Andy Gray, thanks for joining me. Pleasure, Callum. I think you'll have to be of a certain vintage to remember me as a player, though, I have to say. You certainly won't, that's for sure. Just looking at you, far too young. <laughs> in terms of yourself, Andy, I've always wanted to ask you, what do you prefer, co-commentary or, or, or being a pundit and analysing the game in the studio? I always said that I preferred doing the live game up on the gantry, watching it develop in front of me, never knowing what's going to happen, um, and, and doing it instantaneously as it, as it happens uh, in front of your eyes. That, for me, was, was always the best. And, you know, sadly, we don't get to do that often here in Qatar. It's more or less studio work we're doing. Uh, still involved in all the games, obviously. But given the choice uh, where I'd rather be sat in the studio or up on the gantry watching the game develop in front of me live, I, I'd like to do that. I always like to see the bigger picture. There are so many things that you can't see in a television screen that you do when you're up on that gantry. So... I, I prefer that, yeah, definitely. I spoke to one of your former colleagues, Martin Tyler, last week, and, yeah. and he, was, he was reminiscing about his time working with you, over, obviously, here in the UK. And just what was it like working with Martin? Because for many years, you two were really the voice of every big match when it came to UK football. It was terrific. Um, I'd known Martin for many years. He'd commentated on me quite a few times when I used to play. Um, so then when I got the chance to, um, to work with him, uh, it, it was fantastic. You never know how you're going to get on. Um, but we both love the game. Um, we're both very passionate about what we do. Martin never wanted my job. I never wanted Martin's job. So we were very definitive roles that we played. I think we respected each other. I certainly respected him with the knowledge of the game that he has. Uh, and I actually liked working with him. And I like Martin. So it, it does help when you actually... Um, respect and like the people you're working with and, and I did. You don't work with someone for over 20 years uh, almost on a weekly basis, certainly twice weekly almost um, and living in their pocket so to speak um, without getting to know them and I like Martin he's a top man and he's still a top commentator And in terms of your role now in Qatar, you mentioned the fact that you still get to, to commentate in all the very big games and analyse them albeit from the studio just how enjoyable is it for, for you, Richard, and the rest of the team when you're joined by some of the big names you've got? I mean, Jose Mourinho was absolutely priceless when he was on the show with you, and Arsene Wenger as well. Yeah, they're two of my favourites. Uh, obviously, we've had loads. I mean, I could, I could, you haven't got enough time for me to list the quality and the, the favourites. But when you talk about mega people who I've, I've known from afar and finally get to meet, you know, I've met Arsene a few times, and, and you're right, uh, Richard and I had lunch with him a couple of times here in Qatar and I've sat. And it's funny, when you get with him at lunchtime, 
or at dinner. They're different people. They, they, they kind of open up as long as they, are, they know you're football people. I mean, they know I'm a football person, and so is Richard. So they open up a bit more and they're a bit more relaxed. Wenger's fascinating to listen to. And Jose, for me, is box office. I loved it when he was on the show. Um, he was absolutely terrific. Um, and I'm so pleased he's back in the league. I know he gets a lot of stick. I don't know why, because his record is just phenomenal. Um, but I'm glad he's back in the league, because the league's a better place with him in it than it is with him out of it. Before we talk about your playing career, are you happy with the era you played in or would you love to have played in the era that's there now with the finance and the social media and all that comes with that? Playing-wise, just playing the game, I wouldn't have swapped my era for now. Uh, the way it was played, the uh, way it was played suited me, helped me. Um, there was very little... Well, very little possession-based football. What I'm saying is we never spent half the game going across the back, then back across the back, then back to the goalie, then back across the back, then back across the back, before we eventually got the ball forward. We kind of got the ball forward fairly quickly at all levels. All levels. I mean, even the great Liverpool sides I'm talking about in the 70s with Douglish and Souness and people like that in it, who could all pass a ball in Hansen. I'm sorry I've named three Scots there, but anyway, <laughs> but they were, they were Liverpool. They could all play football and all pass the ball around, but we didn't overpass it. We got the ball forward and we got the front men involved really quickly, and that suited my game. So I wouldn't swap my era of playing, but of course, any footballer who's worth his salt is going to say, would you have loved to have played in today's pitches, on today's grounds, with today's rewards? Yes. You know, but that, there comes a penalty to pay for that as well. You're, you're never out of the spotlight. The mobile phones have completely changed the way a footballer has to react and be perceived so many times. Um, social media, the same. Would I have liked to have coped with social media? No, I don't think I would. I know the importance of it for a lot of people, but wouldn't have been for me. So a lot of things about the modern game I'm envious of, undoubtedly, but I would not have swapped my playing era for playing in this era, no. And in terms of you and you, you were growing up, Andy, who was your first ever football hero that you really looked up to? Uh, Dennis Law, I would think. Um, you know, I was a Rangers fan. I'm a Rangers fan. What am I saying? Was You can never be a Rangers fan. You either are or you're not. So I am a Rangers fan. And Rangers had lots of, you know, I remember Colin Steen signing from Hibs for Rangers way back in the day. And he started off with something ridiculous like, he got a hat-trick on his debut, hat-trick on his second game, and about hat-trick on his third or fourth game. It just started, like, unbelievable. And I remember thinking, wow. But for a, for a genuine idol, I mean, Dennis was a Scotland front man. You know, he's blonde. He was like me, I had blonde hair, surprisingly. But Dennis was blonde. He was a centre-forward. He was great in the air. Could head the ball fantastically well. Um, I was always pretty decent at that, even as a young age. So Dennis was probably the, the first one that was a genuine hero. And I know a lot of times they say, don't meet your heroes because you're disappointed. Well, trust me, I met Dennis many times. I was never disappointed. And that, that for me, sums up football because there's so many people in football, most people anyway, that have got so much time for others. And, and that's great to hear. With yourself, yeah. Andy, as a youth, it was you were playing in Clyde Bank before Dundee United spotted you, is that correct? Yeah, I was playing for a team called Claybank Strollers. Um, just a lad had, had, had spotted me playing there. I, I had nothing to do. I was actually not playing football, would you believe? Uh, I didn't have a team for about eight or nine months. And, and as it was in Glasgow in the tenements, 
he, my mate across the road from me shouted up to me one day, Andy, Andy, Andy. I said, yeah, yeah, Saturday morning. What are you doing this afternoon? I said, nothing. He says, come, we need a, when a player are too short, can he come and play for us? So I said, yeah, I'd love to. I've not played for ages. So I played and I scored the hat-trick, I think, of two or three. And they signed me right away, and that was Clybank Strollers. And we went on and won, um, uh, won the, the biggest cup you can there. We played the final at Colberry Park. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget it. We beat Belhaven, a team called Belhaven, who were very good, uh, 3-2, and a, and a great final. And, you know, that, that, was, that was the start of me getting back to playing football again. But for a long, not for a long time, but for a good few months, I wasn't playing the game until my mate gave me a shout. So I'm, I'm, I'm indebted to him for getting me back playing football. From there to Dundee United, and I've, I've got to ask you the obvious question, what was it like working with Jim McLean? Brilliant. Brilliant. I mean, I was 17. Uh, I wanted to learn. Uh, I wasn't the best footballer. wasn't the most talented football faller. I wasn't the most gifted footballer. But I had a, a, a massive desire to succeed. Uh, I had a hunger to be a player. And I was going to be the best player I ever could be. Uh, and therefore, Jim was, was perfect for me. He, Something happened early. He saw something in me very early. Um, and he devoted an awful lot of his own time to me in an afternoon, taking me training. I used to think, why, why, why are you picking on me? Why is it always me? It has to come back on my own boss. Why, what about all the other lads? You know, what, what he thought was, I'm not bothered about the other lads because I don't think they're going to make it. But I do, I do think you are. Uh, so I have a huge debt of gratitude to Paige and McLean. He taught me about never be satisfied with what you've achieved. He let, I left Dundee United with that ringing in my ears. Uh, never be satisfied with what you achieve in this game, Andy, because as soon as you are, you'll start to go backwards. So for two years, he was brilliant. Hard man. I mean, a hard man. Brought people to tears. Brought players to tears at halftime. Um, he didn't suffer fools gladly. Hated losing, which was another aspect of his character I liked. And, you know, I, I, I just, he couldn't have taught me enough. I mean, they say your first few years are the formative ones are the most important ones. Um, and they were for me. Jim, Jim's contribution to what I achieved laterally uh, is, is huge. And in terms of those formative years at Dundee United, did you go into those games feeling that you had the ability to score in pretty much every game? Because when you look back at your record, it's, it's hell of impressive. I, did, I never was, was, I don't think I was ever, I have been arrogant enough to think I'm going to go into every game and I think I'll score. I went into every game hoping I'd score. That's what I did. I went into every game thinking I'll get at least one chance in the game. I'd be very surprised if I played a game of football and didn't have one good chance in the match. So I went in thinking I want to score every game. That, that's definitely, and it was important to me. But more, just as, a, probably more important as I got older was winning the football match. You know, if we'd won, you know, 5-0 five, five and I didn't score, but I played all right, a lot of people say to me, well, you'd be gutted, wouldn't you? I say, no, I wouldn't. I'd be delighted we have won 5-0. I might not have scored. It wasn't my week, but we've won. Whereas if, I, if we got beat 4-3 and I'd got a hat-trick, I'd be gutted. I'd be gutted. I'd get no satisfaction from that at all. So scoring goals was hand, hand in glove for me with winning a football match. Um, there was no use having one without the other. Um, but I did have a, have a genuine belief that I've talked a lot about what I wasn't. And, and I wasn't great. But I always thought it was a good finisher. I always thought if I got a chance, 
I'd hit the target and more often than not, I'd find the back of the net. So I never got phased when I got a chance. That was, what, that was probably my greatest strength is that um, I never let a chance worry me. And if I missed one, good, go and miss the next one as well. Uh, so, yeah, I, I wanted to score every game. Never expected to, but I, I wanted to, that's for sure. A, a few really prolific years with Dundee United, interest in you from, from different clubs, but you go to Aston Villa and from one legendary manager to another, McLean to, to Ron Saunders. In terms of Villa, what was it like when you moved there? Was it a step up in class in terms of the tempo, the training, or was it pretty much just like Dundee United in many ways? Well, the quality of the football on the pitch was, was hugely better, obviously. We're playing in the English First Division. Um, and although the Scottish League in that in those days was 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 a much closer in quality to what it is now with the English Premier League, um, it still wasn't competitively as strong. Um, so the biggest difference was was really getting used to the crowds on a weekly basis. That was that was amazing. Um, Ron Saunders was was different from Jim McLean. Ron Saunders was a centre forward, and he taught me a lot of tricks about how to be a centre forward. Um, not all of them clean. He <laughs> <laughs> kind of taught me how to look after myself uh, physically because I wasn't the, 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 the bulkiest of centre-forwards. I was very skinny and always was. Um, so he, he taught me that. The training was much the same. Jim was a fantastic trainer. You couldn't, there wasn't anything Jim McLean didn't know about training that Ron Saunders did, that's for sure. But the intensity was probably greater. Uh, and certainly in the football games, uh, the competition, because we weren't the best side. We were a good side, Villa, but we obviously weren't the best. Um, so every game was like a, a, an absolute cup final. It was, it was, um, and then you were getting 40,000, 50,000 almost every ground you went to. It was, it, was, it was a bit of getting used to, but I absolutely took to it like a duck to water. I, I, I loved the club. It was, it was a great club for me to go to. Um, Jim McLean had actually said to me at the beginning of that season, called me into his office. That was, yeah, at the beginning of the third season. And he just said to me, you've got to go. I said, what? He says, you've got to go. He says, I, I, I'm only going to hold you back if I don't sell you. Um, and I don't want to do that. Which was big of him. Manager was going to lose his best player, arguably. But he did. I says, I'll try and find a club. But if a club comes in and I don't think they're good enough, I won't accept the bid. But anyway, he accepted Villa and he was right. They were a vibrant young side. With tremendous appetite. Great footballers. Great talent and a manager, in fairness, who was just as dour as Jim, <laughs> just as hard as Jim, you know, when, it, when he talked about, you know, discipline. They were both very much disciplinarians. So my first two coaches for the first six years of my life were huge disciplinarians and, uh, and made sure that, that, that you knew they were. But both very good in, the, in their own right. Jim was a much better tactician than Ron. But Ron was a, was a motivator. In terms of that Villa side, you played alongside some of the club's most legendary players, Dennis Mortimer, Gordon Cowens, Brian Little, many others as well. They achieved a lot of success when you were there. Obviously, you won the League Cup. They also went on to win the League, the, the European Cup, as we all know. What were those guys like as characters? Because they must have had a tight-knit group when you look at the success of that first era of Villa when you were there. Yeah, it was a hugely tight-knit group. But like every club back then, you had your, you had your cliques, you had your, your, your mates. You know, everyone has them. They probably still have them now. You know, not 
25 players don't all go on with each other at every club we watch now in the Premier League. You'll have a little group of people who you like to go out with. We went out as a team, of course we did, but I had really good mates. Uh, like John Gidman was one of my best mates. Alex Crockley, another Scott who came, was terrific for the club. John Burridge and I signed. I was a part. He was a pal of mine. And then there was others who had their own group, like Dennis Mortimer would be with you know, one or two others of the team. And others were just quiet. Brian Little was a very quiet man. Um, but a great lad. There was there was a mix. It takes a mix of personalities and characters to make a really good side, and and we had that. We had our flamboyance. Um, we had our experience with people like Chris Nickel, centre back, and even later, latterly Ken McNaught and Alan Evans, two Scots, who came in and did brilliantly at Aston Villa as well. You know, these were these were all good leaders, and you know, it was it was no surprise that Villa continued to get better and better. Mm. You look at that season at Villa, Andy, joint winner of the Golden Boot alongside Malcolm McDonald, and also, as well as winning the League Cup, PFA Young Player of the Year, Players Player of the Year from the PFA as well. And I'm sure you know this stat, but a double only match by Cristiano Ronaldo and Gareth Bale. I mean, that just sums up the form of your life, really, surely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not bad company to be in, is it? When you think that that was 1976. And here we are in, in 2020, and there's only been two players since 76 to have, who have achieved that. Yeah, I'm proud, hugely proud. First of all, I'm proud as a footballer, but I'm proud as a Scot. You know, if you look at the PFA, I think there's only myself, Kenny, and John Wark are the only three Scots that have won the PFA Player of the Year itself, the big one. So to be the first one, uh, to be the only Scot, and to be one of free to have done that double. Uh, yeah, I'm hugely proud of that, absolutely. But it did emphasise, I think, the kind of season I have. Sometimes you have them, don't you? You have seasons that just are golden and everything you touch turns to go. I remember I started off that season like a house on fire, to be honest. Um, there was nothing I didn't... I keep saying to you, I didn't think I could do this, I didn't think I could do that. But when you're on a run like that and the confidence was as high as mine was, um, I did think probably in that season, that every time I played, I was going to get a goal. During that time at Villa, you also go to the, the 78 World Cup with Scotland. Um, of course, Ali McLeod, the manager. What was it like representing Scotland and also as well going to a World Cup? Something that my generation can only dream of. Now, I have to correct you here. Now, you've been so good up till now as well, Callum. But I didn't ever get to a World Cup. It's one of the saddest... It's the only downside I have in my career, particularly in 1978, where, as you said, I was arguably the best player in England, not just Scotland, having won those trophies the year before. And for whatever reason, Ali McLeod decided not to take me to Argentina. And I have to say, you know, I played in so many qualifying matches. Um, 78 I did, 82 played in a load of qualifying matches. 86, Jock brought me back into the, the fold after the season we had at Everton and then sadly passed away in the, the final qualifying match at Wales when we played, beat Wales. David Cooper penalty, I'm sure it was. The sent us through. So there, there were plenty of World Cup qualifying matches for Mr. Gray, but no World Cup tournament. And that is the one thing that's not on my CV and I'm absolutely bitterly disappointed that it isn't. And when you mentioned 78 there, as you say, you, you get those awards, you're in the form of your career. Is that something that 
as you say, you're bitterly disappointed, but even Ranko's with you more with the power of hindsight, and you think, how on earth can you ignore someone in that form? Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I, I think if I had been English, I'd have gone to the World Cup with England. I think that's how well I was playing. I don't think there's another country wouldn't have picked me. Um, and yet, Ali and his wisdom, God rest his soul, um, decided not to. I mean, I, I don't know if you've got time for a little story. I remember many of years course. after it, Ron, Ron, Son, Ron Atkinson, who's a good pal of mine, I was working with Ron at West Brom. He asked me to go and help him out there. I played there for a year with him. And we were talking. And he said to me, you know, 78? I said, yeah. He said, I've got a story I've never told you. I said, go on then. He says, well, the last game of the season, do you remember it? You had it, Bill? I said, yeah, we came here to the baggies. We were playing you in the last game of the season. He said, correct. He says, Ali McLeod came to the game. Okay. I said, and he said, he came into my office in, I says, okay, Ali, you okay? He said, yeah, I've got, just come to see how wee bud is, Willie Johnson, who was playing for Ron. And Ron said, oh, wee bud's flying, no problem. He's got his gold. He said, but I just want to check on Andy Gray. Because yeah, I've had a couple of injuries, but I've I, I played, I'd scored over 20 goals again that year. I was, I was going well. And we played and we beat them 3-0. I didn't score, but I had, a, I had arguably one of my better games I've ever had, where I, I ran them ragged. We won 3-0. Ron said, I walked into my office and Ali was sitting there. And I turned to him and I went, well, that's an easy decision for you to make now, Ali, isn't it? <laughs> and he kind of shrugged. And, I kind of, and Ron said, I kind of looked at him and thought, well, you've got to take him. I mean, you can't not take him. And I remember sitting in a mate's wine bar, uh, waiting for the, as it was back then, you never got an email or you never got sent. You had to listen to it on the bloody news. So my mate had the radio on and he went out the back and said, I'll go and check the, the, the group. I said, and I had a funny, nagging, horrible feeling that I wasn't in it. Really did, don't know why. And then he came through, and I could tell by the look in his face as he walked back through, I wasn't in it. He says, you're one of the subs. I went, oh. And I thought, well, if I can't get in it then, I'm never getting in it. And, and as I say, when you look at Scotland now, we're crying out for a, for a striker, never mind someone who was performing in the, the top flight England, scoring over 20 goals. So it, it's baffling. And, and one of the things, again, that interests me about your career, Andy, Aston Villa, obviously very successful. But you go to their rivals' wills for what at the time was an English record fee. How did that move come about? Was there any pressure because of the rivalry? No pressure for me. Yet. No, I went because I fell out with Ron Saunders. We had a massive fallout um, when he accused me of cheating the team, cheating the fans, cheating this. You know, I, I, and I remember playing for Ron Saunders with injections in every part of my body because he wanted me to go and play because he needed, I was like his best player and he wanted me on the football pitch. So I, I've lost count of the amount of times I had injections. But for some reason, I missed a, a game against Barcelona because he refused to take me um, because I was nursing a thigh strain, which would have been all right by the time the game played on the Wednesday. But he wanted me to tell him on the Sunday that I was fit. And I said, well, I can't tell you I'm fit on Sunday. He says, well, if you don't tell me you're fit now, he says, I'm not taking you. So he didn't even take me to Barcelona with the boys. He left me at home and then he told a couple of newspaper guys who were pals of mine that he thought, that, why was Andy? Because we only got beat 2-1 out there and you just don't know. We might well have beaten. Might have, I might have got a goal. We drew 2-2 and gone through. You don't know. But he, he didn't take me. And after I heard the stories about what he was accusing me of, I just went to see him and I says, listen, um, I've absolutely no respect for you. I cannot believe you would say that to, to me who's 
gone out there patched up like you would not believe to help you. So I don't want to play for you again. And that was it. And I never said anything to anybody about it. I never told the fans. Maybe I should have done at the time, but I never told them. And the, the only thing was, when you talk about going, who could you go to? If you have to that, in those days, uh, there was a European ceiling of £500,000. So all of a sudden, Ron Saunders and the club went, right, you're going to have to pay a million and a half for him. So they thought that no one would. But uh, Wolves sold Steve Daly for 1.4 to Man City, which came right out the blue. And I knew John Barnwell was a big admirer of mine. And John came straight in and says, listen, I'll take you. And I thought, yeah, yeah. Again, I liked John. I liked what he was doing there. And he, he was getting a decent team together. Um, and I thought, yeah, I need to get away from here and, and get going again. So that was it. So it was basically a big fallout with Ron Saunders. Uh, that was, um, we couldn't patch up. What was Barnwell like compared to, to McLean and, and Saunders? Because you've talked about the disciplinarian oh. nature of both of those guys. Well, you know chalk and cheese. Let's just say <laughs> that. Oil and water. Let's just say that. Uh, John was bubbly. Um, funny. Um, always had a quip. Always had a story. Always wanted things to be upbeat and training and light. Serious, but you could enjoy yourself with, with Barney. Uh, and he was terrific at that. He, he was a total different person from, from what I'd been used to for six years. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was really good. He'd had a terrible car crash, mind you, and it affected him terribly. And he took a long time to recover from that. But I, I liked Barney a lot. I got on really well with him. And, and, and you know, he was great. Even when the day I signed, um, I'm sitting downstairs under that and Doc comes in and says, well, it's a problem with the medical and his knee. I said, Andy, what's the matter with it? I said, man, just had a couple of ops, I'm okay. <laughs> As you do. And he said, uh, okay, stay here. He went outside, he came back, he went, right, let's go. Because we're signing on the pitch in front of the fans and everything. And he said, he'd gone back and he told the chairman, if you don't sign Andy right now, today, I won't be here tomorrow. So they went, oh, okay then. So I went out the pitch, signed, and uh, and as we say, the the rest is history, good and bad, at the Molyneux, sadly. Before we, we, we come to the good and the bad, as you've said there, I want to ask you about one of your teammates, the great Emlyn Hughes. What was mm. he like? Because he achieved so much with Liverpool, of course, but at that stage of his career as the captain at Wolves, what was he like to play with? Loved Crazy Horse. Um, I'd only played against him, obviously, many, many occasions. We'd had some royal battles. Uh, his knee was even worse than mine, by 10, 10 times worse. Um, I was amazed he could get out of the football pitch every week. Uh, it was a measure of his determination to winkle every minute of playing football uh, as long as he could because... You know, he'd have been, if he'd have been a, he was crazy horse. And, and if he had been a proper horse, they'd have shot Emlyn. Because <laughs> he, I mean that, he was almost not incapable of playing football, but he shouldn't have been allowed to with the state of his knees. He, they were so bad. But what a character. What a leader. I liked him a lot. We, we, we'd go out for a few drinks, Emlyn and I. Um, and I liked him a lot. I'd heard various stories from him, you know, yeah, as you do about everybody. But I liked him and a lot of time for him. And I was so pleased because with the, with the golden career he'd had at Liverpool, 
He'd never won the League Cup, you know, ever at Liverpool. So what does he go and do the first year we are there? We go and win the League Cup for Emlyn. I mean, it, it was written. had to be written. Because we played Forest, the European champions in the final. Coffee is well. And miles better than us. And yet, Emlyn Hughes and us, ragtag and Bob Taylor as we were, rag-ass rovers almost we were compared to Forest. we beat them. And, and Emlyn wins the only trophy he'd never won at Liverpool. So, you know, when you say things are written in the stars, then I would think that's got to be one of them. And in terms of that final, you mentioned the fact it's, it's Cluffy's, Cluffy's Forest. When you look through the names that they had, Anderson, Shelton, Gray, McGovern, uh, Burns, O'Neill, Burtles, Francis, uh, Robertson, O'Hare, so many in that team. You win that game at Wembley, well over 90,000 fans, and even better, you scored the goal that seals the cup. Oh, it was, it was unbelievable. They were miles better than us. I mean, you just, you've listed off a, a load of players there. You could name household names. Unless you're a Wolves fan, you wouldn't be able to name most of our players. You know, that's for sure. So um, we went in there as underdogs. We knew we were. Um, but, you know, that uh, Richie Barker and, and, and John had, had got us well ready. You know, we weren't going to have a lot of the ball, but we had to try and make it count when we did. We knew there would be space in behind, so we, we walked on a di- these diagonal balls that eventually brought the goal. Um, and, and we rode our luck. Paul Bradshaw on goal had an inspired afternoon. Emlyn was magnificent at the back. Magnificent. And, and I got lucky. And happened to be in the right place at the right time when David Needham and Schultz got themselves in a right mess. Uh, and, and I got the winning goal, and it's, it's hard to believe that that's the last major trophy they've won. Way back then, Wolves. Um, but they're looking closer now, which is, is great to see. That's the, the big high, as we've talked about, with, with your time at Wolves. But also, there's, there's the tough situation of relegation as well. What was it like in your time at Wolves? Because, as I say, you've alluded to the fact there were highs and there were lows. But overall, how do you reflect on it? Whew. Well, I guess there are people who say, well, you left a team that was going to become league champions and European Cup winners to go to a team that won the League Cup and ended up getting relegated. So, on the face of it, it, was, it, was, uh, it wasn't for a career move. Brilliant. The facts will tell you that. You, you know, you can't lie about that. But there were, as I said to you, there, there were reasons why I left Villa and I was glad I did leave. And, but I have to be honest with you that, the, that when the downs came at, at at Molyneux, they were, they were low. They were low. Um, relegation was horrible. Horrible. Uh, I'd never felt anything like it in my life before. Um, I had no answers for it. You know, you go, you go into your memory bank and you, you, if you find a situation in your life, you go back in the bank, you think, what did I do last time that happened? I'd never been relegated before. I had no idea what to do. I, I, I played all my football at the high level of the, the league, not the low levels. So it was tough. And we were losing a lot of older players. You know, Kenny Hibbert, Willie Carr, John Richards, Emlyn. These were all hugely influential players that were just peeking over the top. And I have to say, when I got near the end of my career there, I thought that maybe I was done as well. I mean, I have to be honest with you. I had, I, I had sincere doubts about whether um, I could cut it again at the highest level. I really did. Um, and therefore, what happened... After that was was just phenomenal. After Wolves comes Everton, but before we talk Everton, 
How close were you to joining Manchester United? I, I think close. Ron, Ron tells me he was close. He was a manager at the time. And, and as I say, he was a big pal, but he was a big fan as well. And he knew that I was leaving Wolves and, and I was leaving cheap. Um, and it was costing nothing. But as I said, uh, the guy that had looked after my knee a lot, my right knee, was a guy called Freddie Griffiths. And he worked in Manchester. And Ron knew him really well. And Ron says, I remember going to Freddie and saying, if I sign Andy, he said, will he play me 35 games a season? He says, be lucky if he plays you 15. Thanks, thanks, Freddie. <laughs> <laughs> so Ron went, well, I can't, I can't risk it then. And Ron said, I backed away then. And then that was when Howard Kendall came in. Well, so with hindsight, thanks, Ron. <laughs> with hindsight, though, it's probably one of the best things you could say that ever happened because you go to Everton and you're at, you're at Everton during a real golden era for the club. You think of the success that you had at Everton, and you look at obviously now I know they're trying to get back closer, but to win to win the league, to win an FA Cup, the Cup Winners Cup. I mean, just just sum up that time because when you when I oh. think of Everton, they're a massive club. But yeah. when you look at that era, that was the golden era of recent times anyway. It was it was a thing that um, that films are made of. And that's why we were ever so pleased in the last year or two we've been able to get a movie out called Howard's Way. If you haven't watched it, watch it. It's a tribute really to Howard Kendall and his time at Everton. Um, and it goes, it, it goes right through the, that three or four year spell in the mid to late 80s. And it's, it's, a, it's a fitting tribute. It says more about that era than I ever could. I, I was, did I think it was going to happen when I walked through that door as a, as a, with doubt in my mind, thinking, can I still do it? Going to Everton, who were struggling in the league, did I see it so quickly? No. But when I got there, there were just glimpses. There were, there were, there were green shoots that you could see in certain players. And then you thought, oh, wow, he's good. Oh, he's good. Wow, he's good. Why are we struggling? And eventually, Howard dropped on it. Whatever he dropped on, he dropped on something. And when we got running, when we got off and running, well, we were, we were unstoppable. We were, we were good. We were better than good. We were phenomenal. We were, we were very difficult to beat. Best goalkeeper in the world. An attitude that was win at all costs. Uh, all for one, one for all. Her mate was in trouble. You better believe he'd get some help pretty quickly. Um, and and that's, what, that's where we went about it with great leadership from, from Howard and, and Colin Harvey and Mick Heaton. So, did anyone see it? I don't think they did. Uh, was anyone surprised? I suppose everybody. But my goodness, we didn't disappoint, you know, for, and not, not even just the two seasons. I was there. The two after that were pretty good. They came second and runners up in the FA Cup and then won the league again. So, you know, it was, it was four glittering years at the club, but the two I shared were the two that everyone talks about because of what we did. And in all honesty, we should have won the treble. Uh, and that again, I'm, I'm, I should be gutted, really gutted. Uh, and I think all the players should be, but it's hard to be really gutted when you'd already won the league that year. You've, you've become the first Everton side to win a European trophy and up till now the only Everton side to win a European trophy and then you fall down in the last game of a season where we've probably played you know 
I, I listen to things today about, you know, we've played nearly 40 games, you know, 45 games. We must have played 65 that year. Um, and, and because we played 42 league games, you know, whatever the European games were, we got the final of the FA Cup, we got deep in the League Cup. So we were 60 plus games. And I think we were, when we played United, three days, three days after the Cup Winners' Cup final in Rotterdam, I think we were, we were running an empty. Because I know Big Ron probably wouldn't admit it if he was here, but we were better than United that year. Better than them. We thumped them 5 1 at Goodison. We'd beaten them at uh, Old Trafford, knocked them out of the Cup at Old Trafford, I think. So we always felt we had the measure of United. But that day, you know, even with Kevin Moran getting sent off, we, we had, we, the tanks were empty, I think. I think the tanks were just empty. With yourself, we talked about the, you scoring the winner for Wolves. What is it with you in Cup Finals, Andy? You scored in that FA Cup Final, you scored in the Cup Winners' Cup Final. As a striker, does that make winning a cup all the more sweeter? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you get a lot of strikers who'll get, you know, loads of goals, but then maybe get the third and fourth goal in a 4 0 victory. I, I always I always like to judge my record on how many games I scored in rather than how many goals are scored, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, you, there are certain players who can play, who can get 20 goals, but only score in 10 games. Whereas I would rather get 20 goals in 20 games because I'm giving my team a much better chance of being successful and I'm, and I'm showing that I'm a better player because I can, I'm adapting and I'm scoring. So I always, I always like scoring in lots of games, but to get them in the cup finals, I mean, yeah, it's, that was, again, something I'm, from a wee guy from Drumchapel, you know, to have got a goal in the, and the only thing I'm disappointed about is like Dennis Conaghan, yes, a name that you'll know, but not many others might, um, made the save of the match in the Scottish Cup final when Celtic hammered us 3-0. Um, and that stopped me getting a goal in the Scottish Cup final. So I'll take the three I got. I'll take the three. The League Cup, the FA Cup and the European finals. That will do me. I want to ask you about one of your, the fellow Scots, Graham Sharp. What was your relationship like with him? Because a very potent partnership. Was and still is top class. The relationship still remains one of my best pals, Sharpie. Um, we got on so well together. I was obviously more experienced than him. I think he looked up to me a little bit. I like to think I taught him a few things in the same way that older people taught me when I was younger. Um, I like to think I helped him become a better centre-forward because his record would certainly prove that or would indicate that um, because he became a top, top-class centre-forward. I always thought Graham when I arrived there, and I said this to him, uh, Graham was a scorer of great goals, right? He'd smash one in from 35 yards and then we'd wait another two or three weeks and he'd smash another one in from 40 yards and you go, oh, wow. What uh, I used to say to Graham, don't, don't be a scorer of great goals, be a great goal-scorer. You need to start getting 10 and 15 in and around the six-yard box, tap-ins, flicks, scuffs. You need to get all those, and, and, and then you will be the real deal. And in fairness to Graham, he did become the real deal, without a doubt. A terrific leader of the line, terrific Everton centre-forward, great goal scorer, all sorts of goals, head, feet, and he was a real team player. Uh, now, I love my time up there with Sharpie, yeah. Another guy who I know is a good friend of yours and I want to get your perspective on him is Peter Reid because he's very passionate when he talks about football but he was very passionate when he played as well. Yeah, he's like, well, we were, we were two, 
cut from the same rock, I think, Reedy and I. I think that's where our affinity started. We knew we were about the same age. We, had, we were two players who had suffered injuries. How many people thought, as I've said to you, that we were done. And that it was a gamble for Everton to buy both him and me. Uh, but we were fiercely, fiercely competitive. Fiercely determined to win. Hated losing. All of those things. I loved Reedy. Yeah. Loved him. Uh, still, what do you mean loved him? Love him. Um, top, top player. Would have him in my side any day of the week. He'd be my first midfield player I would name. Uh, he might not be the most gifted um, but my goodness, I'd have him in any side of mine, any side of mine. From Everton, you returned to Aston Villa for another spell, but how different was the club in that second spell compared with the first? I shouldn't have gone. That's the first thing. Um, when Howard came that summer to my home and said, uh, well, cut a long story short, um, he, he decided he was going to sign Gary Lineker, and I suddenly thought, well, what does that mean for me? He said, well, I'll, I'll be starting with Graham and Gary. I said, okay. I said, well, I don't think I can play reserve team football after the season I've just had. Um, he said, well, Villa have come in. I said, okay, I'll go. And I, and I shouldn't have gone I, because Everton was such a brilliant club and I loved all the lads. And we got on so well together. But I, and I don't usually do that. I just, I jumped in and told him, I'll go then. I'll make life easy for you. I'll go. And I shouldn't have done um, because it was a disaster. Second time round at Villa, absolute disaster. Uh, they were changing coaches as quick as they changed kit. Um, every time you looked around the corner, there was another coach in. And we didn't have the, the, the players good enough. So it was no surprise that sort of relegation followed, uh, which was horrible. Again, even worse, I think, because of my affinity with Villa. It was probably even worse, um, especially after what I'd done the season before, the two seasons before. It was really hard to get my head around it. But that was a decision made in haste and, and one that I regret, but it got me a Rangers in the end. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you, you have a spell with, with Notts County, a spell with West Brom, but really, for you, being a boyhood Rangers fan, being a Rangers fan to this day, describe what it, it felt like when you finally signed for the club. Well, I remember sitting at home and the phone went and it was Big Ron, manager of West Brom at the time. And he said to me, I've had a call. And I'm thinking, oh, here we go. I'm on the way again. He said, who have you always wanted to play for and never had the opportunity? I didn't want to say Rangers. Of course I didn't. So I went, bloody hell, Ron. Real Madrid haven't come in for me, have they? <laughs> <laughs> he went, Real Madrid. He says, your knee's shot. You're 30 years of age plus. Real Madrid are not coming in for you. And I said, go on then. He said, Sue, he's been on the phone. He wants to know if you can, if you can have a chat. You go up. I said, tell him I'm on my way. Um, and that was it. I spoke to Graham. He was quite honest and open. He said, um, you're not going to play much. He said, but you will play. He said, but I want you in and around the dressing room. I need to get this team going, this club going. And, and you're the right sort uh, to set the standard, plus you're a Rangers man. So I want you to come up for this year. Uh, it's, not, it's only going to be a year. I said, listen, Graham, I'm there. I'm there. And he was great. He says, you don't have to move up. He says, you can live in England, fly up on a Thursday, do a couple of days training with us and be ready for the weekend games or midweek games if they come. And it was, it was a cherry on the icing on the top of the cake. That's what it was for me. But mainly for my family. You know, my brothers, that three older brothers who are all Rangers staff, two of them still in the UK. So 
and my mum, of course. Um, they were then able to come to Ibrooks with me and go in dressing rooms and go places where they'd, they'd only ever dreamt of. The marble staircase. They'd never been up there in all their lives. And we were, I was taking them up there and around into the offices, the boss's office. So for them, it was as much a, a, a great thing for them as it was for me. Uh, and to finish that season winning the league, the first of the nine in a row, I'm, I'm, again, I'm chuffed. I'm in the history books at Ibrooks. I'm a member of the, the group of players that took part in nine in a row. And I never thought I would be in Rangers history. And, and I'm so pleased that, uh, although it took a long time, I eventually got there. I know big Jock Wallace tried to buy me way, way back. When I met Jock at a golf day, he says, ah, that Jim McLean, he's a bloody hard bugger. I said, what do you mean, Jock? He said, ah, I went to him when you were leaving. He says, uh, give me Andy. He says, I'll take Andy off you. And Jim says, if you think I'm selling you, Andy, you've got another thing coming. If he goes, he's going to England. He's not staying in Scotland. So Jock went, ah, right, thought you might say that. <laughs> so it took me a while, but I eventually got there. And in terms of the end of your career, Andy, I always get interested to ask professionals this. Towards the end, obviously, you've another spell down south, Cheltenham. Was that just because you wanted to play as long as you possibly could? It was because I didn't know what I was going to do. Remembering in those days, unless you were very lucky, um, when your career finished, you couldn't just relax and count your millions the way the guys can now and just take the time and think what they're going to do and have maybe businesses here, there and everywhere. It was still the time where you were looking for employment to pay the bills, to pay the mortgages. Modern player won't know what a mortgage is, of course, but we certainly <laughs> do. And I, I, I got, came back home to England after Rangers and I waited for the phone to ring. And it's a very sobering, sobering time in a, in a footballer's life uh, when he's get to that age. And the phone actually doesn't ring very often. Rang a couple of times. I remember Hibs phoned to see if I'd be interested in, in player manager or talking to them. And somebody in England, I think Swindon. And I was just sitting at home thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do here. Because the only thing I knew was football. And I thought, I'll, I'll have to start coaching. I'll have to start somewhere. And then I got a phone call from another Scot, a guy called Andy Melvin, who I knew from Scottish television. Um, he was producer up there. Um, and he had just joined a new fledgling satellite company called BSB at the time. And he just said to me, I, I, what are you doing? I says, I don't know yet. I have no idea, Andy. He said, I, I want to talk to you. I said, I think yeah, I've got something you might like. So I went and met him, and I went and met the bosses. And they said they're starting in February. This was in the July, August, the year before. Um, we're running up and running in February. We're going to start this new satellite company. We've got live football rights. Um, and hopefully we're going to get more and more. And we want you to be the, the co-commentator and our voice of, of football. Um, it didn't take me long to agree. I thought it was a fascinating idea, fascinating concept. I thought getting in right at the beginning of something like that, right at the inception of proper football and telly, uh, was too good an opportunity to turn down. So I said I would, but again, I had six or eight months to go with no salary. So another parliament who was manager of Cheltenham gave me a call and said, listen, I know you're not going for another six months or so. Do me a favour. He said, come and play for me. I said, what? He said, come and play for me. He said, it'll lift the city, it'll lift the boys. It'll be great for, for us. 
do it for me, will you? He said, I'll get you a decent wage. Pardon me, I'll get you a decent wage so you can tide you over. And I did, and I enjoyed playing for Cheltenham for those months. But then I had to leave them, begin the Feb, to go and join the, the satellites. I was going to say Stampede, but the, the, the new satellite way that the world is looked at. And in terms of life after football, you look at your time covering the Premier League here in the UK, just how proud are you, again, with hindsight, when you look back at that? Because people can try and airbrush history and rewrite history and whatever. The way I look at it is yourself and Richard hosted Premier League football for two decades, more than two decades, and you look at the success of Monday Night Football, so much so that it's now been brought back many years later, and it's a concept that's again doing well. But people, again, will forget you guys were the originals who had mm -hmm. that show. Well, it's, it's wonderful when you have a blank canvas, and basically that's what we were given, Richard and I. Now, we could have messed it up. We could have made the right pig's ear of it. Um, you know, and, and it goes for everybody. I mean, I'm, I'm even talking about Martin Tyler. Martin might have been the wrong choice. Richard might have been the wrong choice. I might have been the wrong choice. You know, David Livingston, another Scott, might have been the wrong choice for pitchside reporter. So these decisions had to be right. But the one thing I, I, I can tell you about the people he chose, Andy Melvin, is they're all football people. They all love the game passionately. And therefore, we were all determined. You know, I think Sir Alex thought this might last a year, 18 months, satellite television, football. Um, and I think a lot of people thought that. This is short-lived. They'll, they'll crash and burn. I think that was a feeling, certainly from ITV and BBC, that um, BSB would crash and burn. But it didn't. And I think what we did was, was Andy Melvin set the standards. He was a boss. He was a Jim McLean. And he was a bit like Jim. He was a hard taskmaster. Knew what he wanted. This was the standards he set. This is where we're going. This is what we're doing. Monday Night Football was his idea. Um, after, I think, a couple of years came to me and said, I've got an idea. What is it? It means you've been in the studio on a Monday. And I went, oh, really? He went, yeah. But let's go. And we started way back when I used to put the tapes in and wind the thing and press the play button and hope that I'd set it in the right place. And everyone thought, I know they did, that, that I wasn't doing that, but I was. It was you, know, you couldn't have someone else running it because I'm the only one who knew where to stop it and where I wanted it to stop and then we could rewind it all. So there was a school of thought saying, but he's not really doing that, but I was. And it was, it, was, it was quite tough. Mentally, it was quite tough. But, you know, given a blank canvas, I think if you ask Richard, um, I think we'd both say we're, we're, we're pretty proud of the job we did there and, and how we presented it, promoted it, took it to a new generation who were more interested in the, the nuances of the game, the tactics of the game that they didn't have before, give it more time, develop more ideas. The boot room, another classic Andy Melvin thought, was a fantastic little show, ran for three years, I think, brilliant show talking about the tactics in the game and everything with people in, in the game. So, yeah, it was, it was a privilege to have been given the opportunity. And, and I don't think we, we let anybody down who employed us to do, what they, to do what we did with football. No, I think people like, and even Jeff Shreves, when Jeff came on and, and, and people like that, were, were, again, you're bringing proper football people in and you've got a fair chance that the, uh, the, the product is going to be good.
two big moments I want to ask you about that you and Richard um, were on the show with. Ron Atkinson, and, and I remember the one where he says, see you later, lads, and, and, and basically that's him gone, and obviously Kevin Keegan, and he's, I would love it if we beat them. Just sum up those two incredible moments. Well, I remember Ron's, vividly, it was a Monday night, and Coventry were playing at Southampton. Keezy's a Coventry fan, so it was a big day for them. And Ron, in his pre-match interview, had said, um, we'll get what we deserve tonight, blah, blah, blah. You know. So they lost the game, I think, 1-0. So it was very unlike Richard, but he had, he had his Fred the Football fan hat on for some reason after the show. Very unlike him. But I could tell he was stewing a bit. So Big Ron comes in to talk to us, as, as managers did then. And he starts to ask Ron, and Ron says, yeah, you know, I thought we did all right. He, said, um, he says, well, you said you'd, you'd get what you deserved, Ron. You got nothing. He says, no, he says, I, uh, I don't think we deserve that. I'm not going to whip these boys and all that. And he interrupted Ron, which he's never done. I've never known him do that. And he went, oh, by the way, Andy here says, and I'm going, what? <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Nicky. Thanks, Keezy. Andy here says, blah, 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 blah. And Ron went, really? Well, Andy can sit there with his fancy gadgets and his buttons and his knobs and he can do what he likes. I'm a manager of a football team. And I knew what I'd get from Ron. I knew that was going to be his reaction because I know him. He says, so uh, who won man in the match? Sharp. Big man, sharp. Who won man in the match, boys? And Keezy had to go, uh, Dave Besson, Southampton goalie. He went, you must have had a good game then. Thank you very much, boys. And he threw the, the cans and they actually hit Jeff Shreves on the head. And that's why you look at it, he goes, and he goes back again to say sorry, because he hit Jeff on the head. <laughs> just, it's, it's the, Kevin one, the Kevin one was, was, was weird. It was totally unexpected. Totally unexpected. And you see, that's the difference between Keezy and I. He's a journalist. And I'm a footballer. So when Kevin started, it was in my... I, I, I wanted to stop him. And, and to try and protect him. But Keezy was like, this, no, this, is, this, is, this is brilliant. This is box office, what we're getting. He knew what, this, what the story would be the next day. I didn't. I was just trying to, I was feeling for Kevin and how he felt. But it, it took us completely by surprise, you know, and, uh, and I don't know what, I don't know what triggered him. I'm not sure what triggered Kevin. Obviously, I know what triggered Ron, but I'm not sure what triggered Kevin. But they were, they are, they are two moments that, that people talk about a lot, yeah, even now, even now. In terms of your time covering Premier League football, who would you say have been your favourite players to watch? God blame me, too many to mention, really. I mean, as a centre-forward, you can't argue with the, the top goal scorer in the Premier League, and that's Alan Shearer. Um, but others who have taken it to a different level, Thierry Henry, you know, Cantona, Bergkamp, more modern Aguero, uh, unbelievable. Gianfranco Zola, love Gianfranco Zola. Didier Drogba. I mean, there genuinely are so, so many of them that it, it's really hard to, to say... They were brilliant. I just think we've been blessed over this last 20, 20 30 years. Yeah, coming up 30 years with the, the quality of, of footballer and coach that's, uh, that arrived at the Premier League. And, and the thing I've liked about them, there haven't been many of them that have come in and thought, well, I'm a big time Charlie. I'm just here for a, an easy ride. They've all come in and they've, they've worked really hard. I mean, for Gianfranco Zola, who's a good pal and I love him, Dearly, one of the nicest people I've ever met. Uh, 
and, and think the world of him. For him at the age he was, 30 plus, to come into Chelsea and do what he did to such an extent that he was voted the best Chelsea player ever. <laughs> I mean, you think of some of the Chelsea players that they've had. I think it speaks volumes for the attitude of the top pros, regardless of which country they come from. Aguero, one of my favourites of all time. Sergio, love him. Love him. As well as, as, as well as looking at those players, in terms of iconic moments, the take a bow, son, your beauty, those are still mentioned to this day. How do you feel when, when those are brought up? Because as I say, there's still a, 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 a thought here in the UK, and, and again, I'm going to embarrass you with saying this, but there's still people that say cool commentary isn't the same since Andy Gray left. Well, that's very kind of you to, to, to say that. And I'd let, I, I, if that's the case, then I'm, I'm slightly embarrassed, humbled as well. So, um, you see, the, the thing about Take a Bow, Son, is, you know, Take a Bow, Son, it sounds so simple. And everybody's always said to me at the time, you need to patent that. You need to get that done. You need to register that as you're saying. And I'm going, don't be so stupid. And have all these years later, it probably should have been done. But it was something, and I was very conscious of it. Sometimes when, when, when people say a phrase or they invent a phrase, you can over-egg over it. And I always used to, and this is true, and you ask Richard or my bosses or anyone, I would never use it more than twice a season. So it had to be really, really special to get take a bow, son, take a bow. Um, the Steven Gerrard one is, was instinct. It was off the cuff. It was unthought. I was watching a game where a, a Premier League club looked like they were going out of Europe. And I didn't want, even though it was Liverpool, I'm an Evertonian, you don't want the Premier League clubs getting beat. And I was watching the game and, and suddenly this 10 minutes to go, he unleashes this rocket. And I've never done it before because normally when the goal was scored, Martin Tyler would take the first 10, 15 seconds of it, bang, bang, bang. But I jumped all over Martin and I apologised to him after it and went, oh, yeah, beauty, what a hit, son, what a hit. And it's, it's, that was in 96 or something like that, something like that. And people still talk about it. Like Stephen mentions it in his book. It's, it's one of the nicest things. Even Frank Lampard said uh, in, in one of his books, that, or his book that he wrote, he said, it was, I, I feel very honoured, he said, I'm one of the few players who got take a bow, son, take a bow from Andy Gray. <laughs> so I think there were phrases that, that, that the Stephen Gerrard one, what a hit, son, what a hit, was a one-off on its own. I would say maybe other times, well, that's an unbelievable hit. But the way I said it for Stephen's goal was a one-off. Take a bow was for something special. Something special. Um, you know, and it's nice to see pe people are nicking it and using it in the modern era as well. Last question, you, but you were relieved to hear, Andy. Um, in terms of management and coaching, is that something that, I know you're the wee bit of coaching, but in terms of being a manager, is that something that, again, the age you're at now and you reflect back, that you regret not giving a go in any way? Not at the moment. Not at the moment. Um, but I might, latterly, uh, I, um, I loved my year with Ron as his assistant at Villa. I loved it. I mean, I loved it. I loved the work. I loved working with the boys. I loved coaching the boys. I loved planning games with Ron and learning from him. And at that time, I really thought that's where, that's where I'll be going. That, that's where I'm going to end up. 
uh, as, a, as a coach of my own, in my own right. And then obviously Sky took off and I had to make a decision. And I did. Uh, up till eight years ago, a decision I'd never ever regretted. Um, I always felt it was the right decision. Um, I could have gone to Everton, could have. I had an opportunity, they were talking about it in the mid 90s, never materialised. But after that, I kind of made up my mind that I'm going to stay where I am and, and enjoy what I was doing. So I don't sit at home thinking, I wonder just yet. But I do think there'll be a time in my life, because I, I'm not envious of a lot of people in football. The players of today, the riches, that's not something to be envious of. They're just lucky, the boys who play in the modern era. But I'm, I am envious of a coach who plans things all week and puts them into practice on a, on a Saturday or goes to a big final or a semi-final or a massive game and he has to win it and it's his planning. Imagine the satisfaction that somebody like Fergie's had over the years. You know, all those victories he's plotted um, and how he must sit at home with a glass of red wine and go, do you know what? That feels good because I did that. You know, when you're a player and you've got 10 others, sometimes more that help you get success. All right, and as a coach, you've got your, your own coaches, but you plan it, you make the decisions, you tell what, you make the tactics, you decide who's coming off and who's going on. That's all goes to winning a game, and I, 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 I've missed that in respect that I don't know what that feels like. So maybe in a few years, I might sit and go, do you know what, I wish I had coached a side. But I had a taste of it and I loved it but I've never sat and regretted the decision I made to stay in television, no. I have to say, Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I'd love to get you on again in the future because one of the things that I, that I love and I know so many others do is the fact that even now, the fact that we're still just talking about football and your love of football, even in the modern day, the modern football is there for all to see. So thank you so much for your time. That's a pleasure, Callum. And anytime, you know where I am now. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a